human beings are so different and we are to a huge extent, our inner lives are defined by what we fear most losing. But in, we live much of our lives where that is opaque to us. We're not actually aware of that. And that's underneath driving a lot of our behaviors and actually controlling us and controlling us precisely because we're not aware of that, that all these things that we're doing are we're doing to actually avoid some deep fundamental loss. Welcome to the Intersections Podcast, where we take you to the crossroads of ideas. I'm Seth Shapiro, and on each episode, we explore the knowledge and beliefs that lead to human flourishing through the lives and stories of influential voices. In our current polarized, fast-paced, and ever-changing society, anxiety is on the rise. In a recent study from the Kaiser Family Foundation, over 32% of Americans report having symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorder. For young people ages 18 to 24, it is almost 50%. These alarming statistics have concerned mental health professionals for the past few years, especially during the COVID pandemic. But could anxiety actually not just be a problem to make go away in our lives, but could it be an opportunity for some deep inner growth? Well, that is the claim of Curtis Chang, a theologian and author of the new book, The Anxiety Opportunity, How Worry is the Doorway to Your Best Self. Curtis Chang is on the faculty of Duke Divinity School, was formerly a senior pastor of an evangelical church in California, and has been involved in reconciliation work in South Africa. He is also the founder of Redeeming Babel, which challenges Christians with new approaches for participating in the larger world. Curtis Chang, welcome to Intersections. Wow, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, well, the subtitle of your new book, uh, The Anxiety Opportunity, is Worry as the Doorway to Your Best Self. What, what do you mean by that? Well, we're typically used to thinking about anxiety as a problem, as the part of us that we really dislike, hate, wish we could make go away. And I wrote the book as a lifelong sufferer of anxiety uh, with my experience that, yes, anxiety is a problem, and I absolutely can sympathize with that desire to just make this problem go away in my life. And yet I have experienced in my own life, especially through my spiritual uh, life as a Christian, that anxiety is not just a problem, but actually it's an opportunity. And that's why the book is called The Anxiety Opportunity. And when we can actually lean into our anxiety with that understanding that it is an opportunity for growth, especially the kind of growth that for Christians and I think for all humans, we most long to have, which is spiritual growth, growth towards God. Then I think that really recasts our experience of anxiety from not just a problem, even though it has problematic aspects, to also, I believe, uh, one of the most profound opportunities for spiritual growth. In in the book, you you talk about your own. You mentioned your own struggle with anxiety, and and you mentioned even as a young boy <clears throat> struggling with that. Could you talk a little bit about those early experiences and and what you mean by the term high functioning anxiety? Sure. So uh, there's a lot of different forms of anxiety, and people uh, have kind of a very varied uh, relationship with this moniker, anxious or anxiety. Right. Some people really believe they uh, are an anxious person 
feel its effects constantly. Others do not like to be called anxious, don't think they're anxious. They may say, I get stressed occasionally, but I'm not anxious. So we're all on a spectrum of, you know, in terms of how much we identify with anxiety. And I think the people who most uh, have a uh, ambivalent relationship with anxiety are people like me, who are what I call highly functioning anxious people. So from a very young age, uh, only in retrospect now do I realize I was actually anxious all along, but I didn't really realize it. One, because anxiety was viewed as a flaw, a spiritual flaw as a problem. I didn't want to be identified with that. And also because my coping mechanisms for anxiety was this highly functioning anxiety. And what highly functioning anxiety is, there's actually the presence of anxiety that's a deep driver of a lot of your behaviors, but the coping mechanisms that you have adopted to cope with that anxiety actually look like a highly functioning per person. They, they are in our culture, in our society, actually a recipe for world like success defined by the world. Right. So for me, it, it, as a very young, early age, um, I got very good at anticipating problems ahead at making contingency plans at, um, you know, uh, just outthinking, trying to th operating as if I could outthink problems in the world. So, I see. And um, what kind of spiritual beliefs were going on with you at the time growing up, and and over time as you as you became an adult, did, did your beliefs change or alter, and how did that mix with you know, the, your anxiety? Well, I grew up as a Christian. I was not. I did not grow up in a Christian home. I was the first person in my family to become a Christian, uh, come from an immigrant family. I'm an immigrant myself, came over from Taiwan when I was age three. Uh, so didn't have any Christian background, became a Christian through, uh, I think when I was like nine years old or eight years old, um, uh, through a local church. Um, and I think that combined with the fact that I was a highly functioning uh, kid, uh, highly functioning anxious kid already, uh, produced, I think, a very uh, kind of distinctive anxiety profile, which I think is especially very present in, in some spiritual circles, especially Christian circles, because there's a strand of Christianity, um, if you want to call it conservative or theologically orthodox or evangelical, um, not politically uh, evangelical, but theologically, uh, that has a tendency to think of anxiety just as a problem. And in fact, not just a, a psychological problem, but as a spiritual problem, as a sign of lack of faith, as a sign that you need to be praying more. And it's something that you need to push away. So this would be what you would call um, one way in which we treat anxiety just as a problem, which is we want to pray anxiety away. And so I think that was because I grew up in that spiritual stream of Christianity uh, I especially then did not want to acknowledge myself as an anxious person because uh, it was viewed as a sin, as a flaw. And then eventually when I went into ministry, I became a pastor and was still sort of in a stream of Christianity that at least had that pray anxiety away mentality to it. Uh, I especially kept that anxiety kind of hidden and just thought, no, 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 it's just stress or it's, you know, again, it, it did not want to acknowledge its presence in my life. Um, I see. Um, is there a particular reason that you wrote this book at this moment um, with the things going on 
in our society? Is it something that kind of moved you, even though you, it's been part of your life for many years? Is there a reason you said, you know, now is the time to to write this book? Well, because we are in the middle of a epidemic, a global epidemic, and certainly national uh, severe epidemic of anxiety. Uh, anxiety rates are all the way through the roof. I don't know a single family in my network that does not have, for instance, a a teen or a child that is suffering from anxiety. All the statistics show this. You know, uh, only ten years ago, it was uh, the NIH surveys said about one in ten teen was suffering from severe anxiety or depression. In 2019, a mere nine years later, that figure was one in four. Mm. Um, and 30% of teen girls report that they have contemplated suicide because of their struggles with anxiety and depression. So that's just at the teen adult level. It's it, There's a similar, not as severe, but similar sharp rise among adults as well. So we are in the middle of an anxiety epidemic, and we can talk about, you know, sort of how to understand why that is, but the reality is we are in the middle of one. And uh, I believe part of the um, response as a Christian in particular, but I think just as a human being is, well, how do we make sense of this? And I believe if we just make sense of this purely as a problem, we're, we are not only missing the opportunity involved in it, but we're actually making the problem worse. That actually, when we treat anxiety as a problem to make go away, we actually worsen anxiety. And I write about this in the book. And this is why the in the Christian version of this, of praying anxiety away, actually just backfires. It actually creates more anxiety because, well, I'll explain you know, more of that is, but, but that's, that's what happens. Um, and similarly, even if you don't belong in, say, the Christian tradition or spiritual tradition that says you should pray anxiety away, uh, many Christians now don't believe that, but they have just subscribed to this notion, well, then we just outsource anxiety to secular mental health. Mm. And, the, and the issue there is that secular mental health is also prone to simply viewing anxiety as a problem, not to pray away, but to prescribe away, prescribe either with therapy or with medication. And I'm actually a, a believer of the value of medication and therapy. Uh, I've, I've benefited from myself. So I'm not saying those things are, are wrong, but when, when we practice with the prescribe anxiety away solely with the view that anxiety is a problem that we are supposed to make go away, we also can actually make anxiety worse. And even secular mental health professionals are starting to recognize that the mental health, the secular mental health industry has overly pathologized anxiety. And that we've turned something that is actually normal. That's part of the human experience. Um, and we've made it a problem that we have to make go away. And because it is a normal, natural, unavoidable part of the human experience, anxiety is, uh, when we try to make something that is unavoidable go away, it's like we're the hamster running on a hamster wheel. We're we can't get there because we're making something that is unavoidable. We're trying to make it avoidable. We're trying to avoid it, right? So we're, we're running, and that's that's the anxiety trap. Is that actually all these avoidance moves we make to make anxiety go away actually worsen anxiety? In what way? I mean, you, when we try to avoid those feelings of being, no one wants those feelings of being anxious. Yeah. What ways have you seen, or whether in your life or what you've seen in others, has that does that make things worse? Well, I'll give you an example that's most prevalent in my life, which is rumination. So rumination is when we are, we are caught turning a thought 
over and over and over again, such that we we are stuck to it, right? And listeners may have had that experience. Think about a time when you had a worry and you just couldn't get off of your mind and you're just turning it over and over and over and over and over. And it has you in its grips and your mind is like the hamster on the hamster wheel. Well, what's going on there? In reality, for me, as I've come to reflect and, and also read the research on rumination, it's actually an avoidance mechanism. It, it seems like we're actually engaging the issue, but really let's break down what's happening in rumination. What's happening in rumination is that we are turning a situation over and over, thinking that with one more turn, with one more thought, with one more different way of, of looking at it, aha, then we will discover the thing that makes that underlying loss, which is what's driving anxiety, that underlying fear go away. But it never comes. We we can't because it's because actually, again, we'll talk. We can talk more about this. But but anxiety is unavoidable because loss is unavoidable, and that's what anxiety is. It's the fear of some future loss. But because life is actually unavoidably filled with loss, if we are trying to avoid anxiety, we're trying to avoid loss, which means we're trying to avoid the unavoidable. So in that rumination, we're turning over a situation, thinking ah. If, if I think about it this way, or if I approach it this way, then I can for sure avoid that feared loss, whether it's the loss of status, the loss of somebody's well regard of us or finances or whatever. And because that's that we can't ever get there, that's why we're stuck thinking over and over again. We're actually trying to avoid the unavoidable. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Intersections, and we have with us uh, Curtis Chang, who's the author of the book, The Anxiety Opportunity. Um, so you're you're talking about this sort of fear of loss that that kind of fuels anxiety and and yet you as a Christian, you know, there's kind of spiritual language that can make it difficult sometimes to to face that. Do you feel like can it be where where anxiety can undermine the the message of Christianity, where oh. where someone's struggling with anxiety, but yet at the same time they have this kind of spiritual ideas and and um, religious views that seem to kind of go, how do those kind of work together or not? Yeah. The way I would put it is a incorrect and really unbiblical understanding of anxiety can undermine one's faith because let's back up for a moment. Again, what is anxiety? Anxiety is the fear of loss, the fear of some future loss. That's the essence psychologically and spiritually of anxiety. So then really the question becomes, what is your view about loss? What do you think is is really um, the spiritual perspective on loss? So if, because if we say we must avoid anxiety, we must make anxiety go away, what you are really deep down saying is, I must make the possibility of loss go away. That's what you're saying. When you say, I must make anxiety go away, you're saying, I must make any possibility of loss go away because that's what anxiety is. It is the future possibility of loss, right? Mm -hmm. So then it really presses the question of, hey, what do you think this whole Christianity thing is? You know, What do you think God has really promised you in Jesus as revealed in the scripture? And too many Christians today have fallen to the false definition of the gospel, of the teachings of 
of Jesus as actually loss avoidance. That somehow they think, if I believe in this Jesus thing, if I believe in this Christianity, it's like subscribing to some cosmic insurance scheme. It's like subscribing to something that will guarantee and protect me from loss. So if the, therefore it's like, and if it comes up, I should just be able to pray and that possibility of loss will go away. Yeah. Well, first of all, the scriptures and Jesus never said that. They never promised that. And anybody who has lived life at any amount of time, including Christians or not Christians, know that just is not true. That, that no matter how hard you pray, however you wish, however you work, life is filled with loss. Hmm. And so it really presses the question of, wait a minute, what is this Christianity thing for me? And this is why anxiety is, I believe, such a profound opportunity for spiritual growth, because it presses in on this question, what do you really believe is true about loss? Because the real promise of Christianity, of Jesus, is not loss avoidance. It's not that you will never go through any loss in your life. It's loss restoration. It's what is we call resurrection. It's that everything you lose in, that you value and is good, including your life, will be raised again by Jesus. That is the promise of the gospel, the resurrection. And for folks who are not Christians, I know that sounds crazy. That sounds insane. That is, that's what Christianity is. It's the historic, we believe in the historic fact that Jesus rose from the dead and said, those who follow me and subscribe to my way of life will follow in my footsteps through the path of resurrection. But what is resurrection, Seth? It is not loss avoidance. It is actually loss restoration, which means you have to go through loss. That's what resurrection is. You have to die first. You don't get to resurrection without loss, the loss of all losses, which is death. And so... Uh, it's, it, it therefore means as Christians, we have to become, along with every other human being on the planet, we have to face the fact that we will lose things, including our life. And then the question becomes, well, what's the promise we hang on to? And again, the promise is not avoidance. It's actually we would go through it with the promise of ultimate restoration. So loss is part of, in your understanding, Christian belief. There's a sense of we're all losing things, losing our life, eventually we'll all die. But in Christianity, there's a hope that's, that transcends the ends of the, the, the loss of those things. Do you feel like that's different than other spiritual beliefs that you've encountered in your years? You mentioned you're, you've been a pastor and have you encountered other belief systems that really are, are, are markedly different from that approach? Well, answer that question from the context of the first century of Jesus' own context when he was teaching about what he was going to do, which is, you know, die, lose everything, and yet in the hope of the resurrection. Um, so really, there's really three main schools of thought in the first century that actually have analogs to today. So the first school of thought would be uh, Epicureanism, which is this idea that 
you know, there's no, there's no afterlife. There's no restoration. Life. Oh, this life is all we have. So uh, you're going to lose everything. Uh, face it. And what you should do is smell the roses while you can. Enjoy life as much as you can right now. And so, again, that is prevalent in a strong stream of how people think we ought to live our lives today is, well, you know, suck the marrow out of life, do what you want, enjoy, uh, because life is short, right? Uh, and you'll eventually lose it. The second school of thought in the Greco-Roman world would have been Stoicism. Stoicism also taught that uh, there's no afterlife, there's no restoration of loss, you lose everything. But just do the right thing. So live a moral life, right? So um, and and live by your values, whatever that is. Uh, and again, we see modern equivalents of that, like you know, be kind, be loving, uh, live true to your values, and so forth. Uh, make the most out of the life you have now. But there's no promise of any restoration of what you will lose, right? Mm. And then the third would be Platonism, and Platonism uh, teaches you that actually. Uh, there's some sort of hazy afterlife, um, but loss, but it's, it's, we are disembodied, right? So we, it's a, we exist solely as spiritual beings and, and therefore the things we lose are just bodily things. So they're not really real. They're, that's not the real, real. Mm. It's just an illusion. Um, our, our, our bodily life and our bodily life, the real life, which is to come is this life as a disembodied souls, that's really Platonism, um, that your loss is not real um, because your bodies aren't real. And, um, you know, that I think has some equivalent to some, you know, new age spiritualism that actually teaches, again, that we'll be reincarnated as spirits. Uh, you know, our bodies are not our just an illusion and so forth. So Christianity stands out as it did in the first century. And it stands out today as actually not none of those three options, because it says no, you will, against Platonism, it says you will lose things. And these losses are real because your body is real. <laughs> and and the, when you lose bodily things, you're you're losing a real thing. Uh, but against Epicureanism and Stoicism, it says there is restoration. There is a life to come um, that we can live towards um, uh, in faith, hope, and love. Interesting. You're listening to Intersections, and we're talking with Curtis Chang, uh, author of the book, the anxiety opportunity. Um, so you attended Harvard uh, University, uh, known as having the some of the sharpest minds in the country, even in the world. And it, you came into college with this this religious faith that you have, this spiritual belief that you have. Did attending this university challenge you intellectually? You know, with what you believed and why in in kind of the circles there at Harvard. Oh, sure. I mean, there was a lot of skepticism, a lot of just a presumed um, kind of a presumption among professors, among other students that how could you possibly believe uh, these things? But uh, I, I think ultimately being in that environment and having to wrestle then with doubt, with questions, with skepticism was really good for me because uh, it really forced me to clarify wait what is it that i really believe why do i really believe in it and i think it's it's one reason why i anchor my take on anxiety through the lens of the resurrection because that historic fact i believe it is a fact it is a you know of course as with all historic facts it can be disputed it can be debated but i think it's rooted in a historical claim anyways uh, that this really happened, that Jesus really died and rose from the dead. And therefore, 
uh, what he said has to be taken seriously in that light. Um, it sort of drove me back to those foundational anchors. Mm, interesting. A lot of people, when they get to college, it sort of rattles their faith mm-hmm. a little bit um, yeah. um, in those circles. Sure. Um, you in your book, you you in your book, the anxiety opportunity. You you actually you use this term. You describe anxiety as sometimes referred to as Americanitis. Um, as people started to refer to that, could you talk a little bit about that term and how that relates to anxiety? Well, again, because anxiety is the fear of a possibility of loss, fear of future loss. Uh, one of the distinctive traits about American culture is we hate to lose. We hate to lose in competitions and we hate to lose things in life. And we hate to contemplate the the, the reality that we all of us uh, are going to be losers in the ultimate sense. We will all lose our life. We will all die. American, modern, modern Western American culture, more than any other culture in human history, w- seeks to avoid confronting mortality, confronting the the our future inevitability that we will lose all things. This culture is also the most anxious culture in human history. I don't think that's a coincidence, right? because precisely because as Americans, we so much are uh, avoid, cannot contemplate the idea of loss. And so we we do everything we can to avoid it, avoid thinking about it, avoid confronting it, avoid acknowledging it, uh, that will distract ourselves silly. We will go through any extremes to avoid uh, living as if that were true. Uh, it inevitably takes us into highly anxious avoidance uh, behaviors. I see. Um, and, and when you look at, at today, you mentioned the kind of, you feel like one of the reasons writing the book is the anxieties, you know, teenagers in the generation Z are just huge numbers of teenagers dealing with mental health challenges, including anxiety. What is it that you feel in our culture, whether it's in, in, in our country or the world that, that to you is sort of fueling this anxiety, this epidemic of anxiety that we're experiencing? Yeah, when I answer that question, I liken it to like we are we're experiencing this flood uh, of anxiety, like a tsunami of anxiety. And when we ask what is driving it, what's causing it, I think there's two different ways you can answer that question. And you can use the analogy of what caused Hurricane Katrina. And you can a- answer that in two ways. One in terms of like high level structural cause, like, well, there was this pressure system here, this tidal pattern here global warming, injecting energy here at a very high level, like here's what caused the hurricane. In a similar way, I think you can do a very high level structural analysis about our culture. Well, I certainly think if you follow the writing of Jonathan Haidt, I would say social media and smartphones are a big structural cause of the rise of anxiety. And for those of who are interested in that, I encourage you to check out his work. He makes a very convincing case that the sharp rise of anxiety coincided with the introduction of smartphones and social media, um, or that we're living in a very uncertain age with political uncertainty, climate uncertainty. Uh, now we have AI uncertainty of people affecting their views of their work. Uh, there's uncertainty. We are living in a particularly uncertain age and uncertainty, again, because anxiety is the fear of possible loss. Uncertainty brings the prospect of loss. And so at a high level climate change level, we have more forces um, try to driving the uh, currents of anxiety. Hmm. There's another way to answer the question though uh, about 
what's caused, um, you know, sort of this catastrophe, which is when, again, go back to the Katrina analogy, uh, you know, if you live in New Orleans, you know, actually hurricanes are a natural part of life down there. It's it's part of what it means to be live in New Orleans is, is to have hurricanes. And in the same way, I'm saying, look, anxiety is part of natural human life. It's part of what it means to live in in our as human beings, just like hurricanes are for for uh, residents of New Orleans. The real another way then to ask the question, what happened with Katrina, is why did the structures that we set up to hold a natural occurrence, why did they break? In other words, why did the levees collapse, right? And it turns out that those levees were built on very highly flawed foundations. They were they were flawedly, badly constructed. And so they could not hold up to what was a naturally occurring event, even, even though it was, in Katrina's case, it was particularly extreme. That's what I'm saying is what's going on for us today. Mm. Yes, there are high level causes for that, such that the winds of anxiety are higher, the currents are stronger. But what's really being revealed is our levees are broken. The, the traditional ways we have constructed our response to anxiety are built on flawed foundations. And that's especially true for Christians because we've built so much of our levy, our spiritual levies on this foundation that anxiety is a just a problem that we're supposed to pray away. But that even for secular folks, non-Christians, the levy of we just prescribe anxiety away and try to make it go away, that is also a flawed levy. That is also a flawed construction. And that we need to rebuild our response to anxiety on the understanding that anxiety is not just a problem, but it is an opportunity, right? Because when you construct something, when you construct something at the foundational level as a problem, as Americans, we naturally think, well, if something's a problem, we want, what do we want? We want a solution, right? right? And as Americans, what do we think is a satisfactory solution? What must it do to the problem for it to be an effective solution? Well, it must eliminate it. Right. And that's when we start getting into this. We make anxiety go away. We're out for this quixotic uh, false quest to make anxiety, to eliminate anxiety, to make it go away. Mm. Versus if you start with the foundational construction that anxiety is fundamentally an opportunity. Well, then if something's an opportunity, you ask, well, what's the doorway? Like, like it's a it's a door that I want to open. I want to actually like. Go walk through that opportunity. It's like price is right, you know. Like I want to, I want to, I want to take advantage of that. And then once we think of it as doorway, then we realize, oh, this is a opportunity for us to go through. We walk through it, and that is when we discover both anxiety as an opportunity for growth. When we're willing to go through it, not avoid it, but to go through it. And I believe then, as a Christian, in that doorway is when we we meet Jesus in a deeper, deeper way because Jesus is right in the midst of anxiety. He dwells. He himself knows anxiety. This is the one thing that 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 I write about in my book that many Christians and non-Christians don't realize is that the Gospels depict Jesus as having experienced profound anxiety. So it's part, Jesus is part, Jesus affirms that this is part of the human experience that he himself embraced. And he's there. He he knows anxiety. And so we can expect, if we want to get to know Jesus, we can meet him in our anxious experiences.
I know for you, you've talked about this importance of embracing anxiety and it becomes an opportunity for kind of a new approach to our lives. What does that look like in your life? Have you, have, as you've embraced it, you went through a process of, an, of first trying to get rid of anxiety and then being to embrace it. What kind of new opportunities has that led to in your life? There's so many, and I, you know, this is why I wrote the book, right? Is because I, I think there are so so many profound opportunities. Uh, one of them is that when we can really invest, if we think of our anxiety not just something to make go away, but something that we go through, well, then we like dig more into it. We become curious about our anxieties because we want to go through it. We're not just trying to push it away. Hmm. And so much of what we are insight about our lives are revealed through our anxiety because anxiety again is the fear of loss right so um how many of us really know deep down what is it that we most fear losing it's actually a pretty deep question right because do people answer that question very differently like i fear most the loss of success but that's not true for everybody my wife most feels fears the loss that she's done something right I have another friend who most fears the loss of, of autonomy, like the loss of, of his own. I have another friend who most fears the loss of belonging, right? Like to, we human beings are so different and we are to a huge extent, our inner lives are defined by what we fear most losing. But in, we live much of our lives where that is opaque to us. We are not actually aware of that. And that's underneath driving a lot of our behaviors, and actually controlling us and controlling us precisely because we're not aware of that, that, that all these things that we're doing are, right. we're doing to actually avoid some deep fundamental loss. <laughs> Excuse me. So for me, viewing anxiety as an opportunity for spiritual growth uh, has sort of uh, drawn me into curiosity about my own anxiety because it is going to tell me what it is that I fear losing. And if then I can really face that and be willing to endure that loss, not run away from it, either consciously or in many cases, like I said, unconsciously, there is tremendous freedom that comes from that, tremendous energy, tremendous creativity that comes from that. Because rather than expending all this uh, energy trying to run away from something that is unavoidable, I'm instead willing to go through it. And what I have found spiritually is that actually unlocks just a tremendous amount of freedom and energy because I'm not I'm not running away. I'm actually going through my life. Hmm. So it sounds like you're saying uh, anxiety gives us the chance to be honest with ourselves in a way that sometimes we're often not. We want to avoid looking at ourselves clearly. And if we let the anxiety speak, we can learn new things about what, what our motivations are. Right? Is that it, correct? Exactly. And even more than just an intellectual knowledge, an ability to hold it, an mm. ability to actually say, oh, I'm, I, I not only realize that I'm really afraid of losing my self-image as, as a successful person, I'm speaking autobiographically here, um, but I can go through this anxious experience and I can really go through it thinking if I don't succeed here, if I lose my self-image uh, as a successful person, I, I will make it. I'll, mm. I will survive. I can go through that. Mm. Um, and I can, I can, I can experience that little foretaste of death. Mm. Uh, like when we lose ourselves, right. I can lose mm. that part of myself. 
And if you can live life that way of saying, you know what, the thing I most fear of losing, I can actually lose that. So much opportunities in life open up before you because we spend so much of our lives, even unbeknownst to ourselves, again, running away from things in life because we sense in that thing in life, in that opportunity, in that relationship, in that job, in that endeavor, in that new hobby that I may want to take up, whatever, is actually, I'm actually anxious about it because I'm, I'm fearful of losing the thing I most fear losing. And so if we can actually say, no, I'm going to go through that. I can avoid that. So much of life opens up before us. Hmm. And that's where it seems like your faith really gets put into action because you believe in the resurrection. There's a restoration promise. Yeah, I, I can, if I, as it's going to feel like death when I lose that sense of success, but you know what? I'm going to die anyways. I, I'm, I am destined for death. And, but as a Christian, I can go through that death, both the little foretaste of death, like the loss of self image or like that and actual death. Because I believe death does not have the final word. Jesus has the final word. And in Jesus, he says, I am the life and the resurrection. Um, and so, so that's what I hold on to. Um, I hold on to that promise. And because I can hold on to that, I can go and uh, go through all sorts of things in my life that in the past I would have been really afraid to. You're listening to Intersections here. We're talking with Curtis Chang, and he's the author of the book, The Anxiety Opportunity. Um, kind of, I mean, it's sort of maybe related to what you've been talking about. But you, you start an organization called Redeeming Babel, and it seems like that organization kind of helps or kind of deals with how people apply spiritual beliefs, both personally and publicly in the public domain. Could you explain redeeming Babel and what your, what your work is with that. Um, yeah. And how you address the application of belief in redeeming Babel. Sure. So redeeming Babel, its mission is to try to help in particular Christians make sense of the world, the world out there. Uh, and I, I started this because my own life is defined by both my first career career was really as a pastor, as a minister for Christians my second career was really starting my own consulting firm uh, here in the Bay Area, serving secular nonprofits and government agencies. So out, out there in the world. So I've lived in both the Christian world and the world, the secular world out there. And I feel like a particular sense of calling to help Christians live more healthily, spiritually, um, uh, truthfully in their engagement with the world out there. So we produce content that helps Christians do that. And we have three really um, uh, big content streams that are deal with the interior human life, deal with our communal life, and deal with our broad, what you might call our social political life. And so in our interior life, I'm trying to help Christians make sense of anxiety in the world. That's why I wrote the book. In our communal life, I'm trying to help Christians make sense of their organizational lives. And in the broad social sense, I'm trying to help make sense of their political lives these days. And that especially is a big project we're undertaking uh, with David uh, that I'm doing with my friend David French and Russell Moore. We're, we're doing a project called The After Party, which is trying to address the toxic political polarization that is certainly affecting American Christians, especially evangelicals, but also you know the broader world and, and trying to uh, show Christians that Jesus has a very different way than the political politicization of the partisanship of our faith that that's happened. 
Uh, so that's Redeeming Babel, and the, the term, the name Redeeming Babel comes from Babel is the biblical story of when human beings are in a state of division, confusion, uh, misunderstanding, and inability to make sense of the world. And that, I think, characterizes our sort of our current state of affairs in the world right now. Mm. And I believe, though, that because, again, I believe in the resurrection, that this can be redeemed. It can be uh, addressed and restored in Jesus. And so redeeming Babel is just that. We're trying to redeem this particular cultural moment where there is so much division, misunderstanding, and confusion. Have you gotten much pushback in redeeming Babel from whether Christian circles or or not Christian circles about the vision of what you're trying to do with Redeeming Babel? Is there much, much resistance or more curiosity or what has that response been? There's both, but we certainly, you know, I would say, especially from the extremes on both sides, we get a lot of um, uh, pushback, uh, probably a little less so on the, on the left, although I think some folks who are especially very left would view anything related to Christianity as oppressive, as uh, patriarchal, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, we get some of that. We probably get more pushback and critique and suspicion from the far right, be precisely because we are advancing a vision of Christianity that is not held captive to partisanship and to kind of the cruelty that sort of so has so animated, I think, and the division that has so animated uh, the far right. Uh, the, the probably... Ex most pointed example of this was um, Redeeming Babel took on an initiative um, in 2021, early 21, in the in the pandemic, where there was a lot of um, suspicion, confusion, misunderstanding about the vaccine uh, being sown, especially among conservative Christians, among evangelicals. And we led the national campaign called Christians of the Vaccine that was producing content and video to address the Christian-based uh, suspicion of the vaccine by using Christian sort of, you know, understandings and arguments. And I got a lot of, of, uh, of attacks based on that. I, you know, people accusing me, I have, I have blood on my hands because I advanced the vaccine because they've, you know, viewed the vaccine as, uh, as a destructive force. So yeah, I'm no stranger, I suppose. Uh, other people have had it worse, but I've had, you know, some share of the toxic, hostility that affects our our, uh, our cultural landscape today. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because you were yourself a, a pastor of a megachurch, if I could call it that. Evangelical uh, yeah, uh, I don't know about megachurch is, is giving us a little too much credit. <laughs> okay. Well, evangelical, more conservative, evangelical, yeah. conservative theologically, uh, evangelical church. And, why, why, and so you kind of know that culture really well. Any sense of why, why, so much a part of the evangelical church has, has become politicized the last, you know, five, seven years. Oh, well, so that is a whole other podcast topic. Uh, so <laughs> for those people who are interested in that question, I really encourage you, if you really want to, you know, you should, uh, follow uh, my podcast called Good Faith Podcast. That's a yes. very, um, you know, sort of recurrent topic of, of discussion. Um, you know, one of the things I love about the Good Faith Podcast that I do is how many non-Christians listen to it. I mean, we got lots of folks who are not Christians, but they're curious, interested, like what is going on in the Christian world, uh, both in its dysfunctions, but also with some at least interest, like do they have anything helpful to say and offer? Um, and so if you find, and listeners out there find yourself in that 
description, uh, come check us out at the Good Faith Podcast. Yeah. Any any bullet points just for for people who might not they might not be listening to Good Faith, and I would highly recommend that podcast as well. But, um, for people outside the Christian uh, community, why maybe just a couple reasons you don't have to necessarily go in depth why those why so many people of faith have been captivated by the political division just some kind of brief um, yeah so the way i would answer this would be uh it's it's a one rabbi once answered the question about uh jews he said look we jews are just like everybody else just more so in other words we're humans we, we as jewish people as jews we we are like you know so if you talk about a human passion a human virtue or a human vice we're that just more so uh and i think christians as descendants of jews spiritual descendants we we are kind of like that because because we have religion in us we have a belief in god which is a is a powerful powerful force it's like a force multiplier it multiplies mm. what is truly human both for mm. ill and for good um some of the kindest most sacrificial people i know are christians some of the people, some of the worst worst things that have been done, uh, that I've seen, have been done in the name of Christians. Right? It's both, yeah. uh, because we are just like everybody else, just more so. Um, and so, the you know, why has the world fallen into toxic political polarization? Again, a ton of reasons for that. Yeah, sure. um, but uh, but we're more so. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I see. Interesting. <laughs> interesting way to way to to frame it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you've so you were you were a pastor, and then you mentioned you um, went through your own anxiety struggle and ended up leaving, becoming a pastor. And then you started an organization that works with government. What, what's what's that work? Like? Nonprofits and government. Nonprofit. So we're okay. a strategy consulting firm and do a lot of leadership development, strategic planning, marketing, fundraising. Um, the firm is called CWR Consulting Within Reach. I see. I got it. Um, and what sort of what sort of work have you done with with governments and 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 nonprofits? You, you name an issue we've we've worked on it: homelessness, in the environment, after school programs, criminal justice. Uh, probably pretty much any any social issue. We've worked probably worked with some agency that has tackled on that over the last fifteen years. Yeah. I I see. Okay. Um, okay. Well, any final words that you have for? Listeners, maybe listening, who are dealing with anxiety. Well, uh, if you have any interest in what a spiritual take on anxiety is, uh, especially a Christian spiritual take, even if you're not sure you believe any of it, but if you're interested in kind of well, how what would what could possibly change in my experience of anxiety if I just at least was open to a spiritual perspective on anxiety? I encourage you to check out the book. The Anxiety Opportunity, available on Amazon and everywhere. And then if you're interested in how the Christian faith might be playing out, again, in the broader world, uh, I encourage you to listen to the Good Faith Podcast. Great. Well, Curtis, thank you so much for being with us on Intersections. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure to be here. Curtis Chang is on the faculty of Duke Divinity School. He was formerly a senior pastor of an evangelical church in California and is a senior fellow at Fuller Theological Seminary. He is the author of the new book, The Anxiety Opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intersections. Intersections is produced in association with KSQD 90.7 FM. 
To subscribe to the podcast, click follow in your Apple, Google, or Spotify podcast app and make sure to leave a review. All archived podcasts and information about our guests can be found on our website, intersectionspodcast.org. On our website, you can sign up for our free At The Intersections newsletter and listen to Faith Matters Conversations featuring panels of spiritual leaders discussing how their faith traditions speak to a variety of topics. You can contact Intersections by emailing info at intersectionspodcast.org. I'm Seth Shapiro, and join us on our next episode where we will continue exploring the crossroads of ideas on intersections. Intersections.